Well, <laughs> what an exciting morning. I'm sure that, uh, like me, you were a little surprised to see that the ceiling was on the floor as you arrived uh, this morning. It's, uh, it's been a tremendously exciting uh, weekend here at the Learning Community Immersion as we've been looking at Family on Mission. And quite obviously, the enemy is not pleased uh, there are certain things that uh, he's wanting to oppose. Uh, Sally and I um, had the early symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning last night. And uh, uh, I looked across at Sally, she kept on dozing backwards and forwards in and out of sleep. I thought, it's a bit early for her to be asleep. I mean, and, uh, and I thought, I, I feel like, I, am I feeling dehydrated? So I went and got a glass of water, sat back down, the carbon monoxide alarm went off. And um, it was our first fire of the of the winter, I don't know what's happened. I mean, maybe there's a bird in the chimney, so I don't know what it is. But, uh, but we went round to a friend's house and we got some, um, some oxygen therapy and the headache went amazingly quickly. And, um, and we slept tremendously well last night. And uh, we're very glad that we didn't wake up in heaven. So that was, uh, that was our participation in uh, all of the all of the activities and uh, challenges of this weekend. A little, bit, um, a little bit later on as we look at our text this morning, which uh, for those of you who are regular members here on Sundays, we're not going to be looking at Luke and Acts this morning. We're going to be continuing with the content of the learning community. And so we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 26 following. So if you want to find that, feel free to do so right now. But I think, it's, um, I think it's important to really share with you some of the exciting things that are going on right now. Not only this weekend, which has been an amazing weekend. Sally and I have done family on mission experiences all around the world and have uh, spoken to small crowds, large crowds on this subject. But I have to say that this weekend tops all of them. I've never been at a place where there was such an openness, uh, such an avid desire to devour the content, to learn what it is that God is saying. There really are wonderful things happening among us as God brings his renewing hand. So we're tremendously excited about that. But over the next few weeks, there are going to be some, uh, perhaps for some, still more exciting adventures. On November the 3rd, the first Sunday in November, we will be moving to a single service on a Sunday. One of the concerns that I've expressed to the elders and to the staff and to other leaders in the church is a desire for us to have a single point of reference so that we can function collectively as a family on mission. Now, it's not that we can't do that with several services on a Sunday. It's simply easier to begin to work that work into us as a congregation if we can meet at a single time. And so on November 3rd, we're going to be meeting at 10 o'clock. The, um, by then, <laughs> I say with faith and assurance, everything will be in order and uh, all of the family ministry stuff will be put into place and we'll be able uh, to function that week in the way that we really want to. We want to function from a single place of reference, a single place of identity, a single place of growth and renewal. And so on November the 3rd, 
we will be forming a single service on a Sunday. There will be no longer nine and 11. It will be 10 o'clock. But between now and the third, there are some exciting things. Next week will be just the normal services as always, back into Luke and Acts. And then on the 27th, we will have Jordan Lukens with us leading worship. He will be the first of two candidates who are exploring with God whether they're called here to be part of our team at Team Apex. And so on the 27th, Jordan will be with us and leading worship. And then on the 10th of November, Cole Jeanette will come and join us. He is another of the current two leading candidates uh, to look at the job of worship leader here in Apex. And so we're tremendously excited. These next few weeks will present uh, really exciting and adventurous times for all of us. But more about that a little bit later. Right now, it would be good if we looked at the Word. We've got a couple of other announcements about things that are coming up this week. Uh, so for those of you who are worrying that I might not remember them, don't worry, I have. <laughs> I can see Ren is sitting on the edge of his seat thinking he's forgotten. So let's, um, let's look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 26. I think this may be one of the few mornings on a Sunday when there are more people outside of the sanctuary than there are inside the sanctuary. I'm not quite sure all that they're doing out there, but they seem to be remarkably quiet all of a sudden, so I don't know what that is. Let's look at this together. At that time, the Lord's voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We've been looking at the family as a subject of interest and concern this weekend. And we've understood that the basic operating system of the New Testament church based upon the revelation that Jesus brought about God is that we are family. It is unmistakable that the principal revelation that Jesus brought in his teaching about who God is 
was that God is our Father, that we should pray to Him as our Father, that we should understand Him to be our Father, that we should relate to Him as our Father. And as such, because He's our Father, we have a family around us who addresses Him in the same way. Anyone who addresses God as Father, therefore, is claiming a place in the family of God. And as such, is a person whom we should consider as a brother or a sister. It's really unmistakable and in many ways impossible to refute that the principal understanding of the people of God who followed Jesus in those early years of the church's life understood that they were above all else the family of God. And that family was principally expressing its life in the extended households of the New Testament church. Households that perhaps we might call extended families that were both blood and non-blood relationships. And in those extended households where worship was, was ignited, where the word of God was shared, and where the gospel was regularly lived out and enacted in the breaking of bread, these early households were the principal vehicle of mission that God used to transform the world. On the day of Pentecost, there were 120 people who claimed the name of Jesus. By the time that Emperor Constantine recognized the church as the principal spiritual force Within the Roman Empire, over 50% of the Roman Empire were Christians. Just a short 270 years later. And the principal agent of that mission, the principal agent of that amazing transformation in those early years of the church's life was the Christian household. The extended household that looked very similar to what we would call house churches today. And of course, it was built on a fiber and a, a fabric within society that everybody recognized and understood. The extended family had been the cornerstone of human culture and existence for millennia and continued to be so up until very recently. Today, as we look at the church, it's difficult sometimes for us to think of the church in the, in the terms that the New Testament church did because our world is so devoid of a proper understanding of family. A proper understanding of parenthood. A proper understanding of what it means to live in these wonderfully connected relationships that create the extended family that this nation was built upon and all of the cultures of this planet look to as their forebears. What's happened in our world? Well, what's happened is that there has been a cultural earthquake. Nobody can, I, I assume, not unless you're living in La La Land or something, nobody can assume that the world in which we live is anything other than 
a world that has been continuously shaken by earthquake after earthquake. And I don't mean physical earthquakes. I'm using a metaphor, a seismic metaphor that is very often used both in the academic and in the spiritual realm. Our world has been shaken over and over again. 9-11, the collapse of banking in 2008, the continuous aftershocks that we feel over and over again. We're so annealed, we're so, we're so numbed to the effects of the cultural earthquake that we're barely able to notice. Our world is constantly being shaken. And in the shaking, we found ourselves becoming more and more atomized, more and more individualized, more and more isolated, more and more lonely. It's not surprising that in such an atomized culture, in such, a, in such an isolated world, that suicide has become such a major issue in the lives, particularly, interestingly, of young men. This is a world that has been devastated by a cultural earthquake that doesn't seem to have any end. But it did have a beginning. The writer to the Hebrews is speaking about God shaking the nations. He refers back to the first time that the people of God lived in a place where the, the ground was heaving. He speaks about Mount Sinai in the wilderness where the children of Israel have escaped from Egypt and they've gathered to worship God on his mountain. And there at the mountain, the ground is being shaken by the very glory and majesty of, of God himself. And in the prophets, they, they confidently predict that once more, God will shake the nations. The people that the writer to the Hebrews is, is dealing with, that what they're dealing with is, is probably the assault on the Holy Land of the armies of Rome. They're moving in to quash and quell the Zealot Rebellion which started in AD 67 and was utterly crushed at the fall of Jerusalem and finally vanquished at the fall of Masada in AD 72. Remember, Jerusalem really has never recovered from those days when the Romans came in AD 70. Imagine that, 2,000 years later and a city has not yet recovered. They've only just now got to the bottom of the pile of rubble around Temple Mount that was created when the Romans destroyed the temple and took away all the artifacts. This was an earthquake that would shake a nation to its very core. And that's what the writer here is speaking about. And that's the anxiety that he's addressing in these early Jewish followers of Jesus. And when he speaks to them, 
He speaks to them about the things that they need to be cautious about, the things that they need to be careful about when they're facing these seismic changes. He says, you have to be careful not to become so self-centered in your desire for survival that you lack the compassion of Jesus. You see, what happens when we face catastrophic change is that we tend to look to ourselves and naturally, it's just a human reaction, naturally we tend to, we tend to go for survival rather than service as our mode of operation. The writer here is reminding them that they need to be welcoming, that they need to be compassionate to those in prison, those who are being mistreated, those who for their faith are having to stand and he doesn't want them to stand alone. He says compassion, of course, will need to be part of the way that we respond to the earthquake. You see, what the writer here to the Hebrews is saying in the midst of the earthquake, don't function as a victim. Function as part of the rescue team. Yes, the earthquake will come. Yes, the shaking will no doubt shake the culture and the society to its very roots. But God has designed and raised up a rescue team. And the rescue team are his people. And for a rescue team to go into a place of catastrophe and difficulty means that they first need to operate with eyes of compassion. If you speak to anyone who may be a first responder within our congregation, they'll tell you that to triage a situation when you first go in is absolutely essential. And to triage it means that you then know how best to respond. After earthquakes, I've spoken to earthquake victims and communities where earthquakes have taken place. They say that the first things that are needed are the things that bring immediate help, that are just expressions of human compassion one to another. But then the next thing that the writer speaks about is very often what is brought when a rescue team comes to a community in catastrophe. Once the initial compassion has been shown, the next thing that has to happen is that community is rebuilt. Community is the very, the very foundation of what it means to be a human being. And at the heart of community is family. And at the heart of family, of course, is the covenant relationship of marriage. And so the writer here says, be sure to protect and honour and, and hold fast to this essential institution. And from that institution, recognise that community can be built and that community is called family. Now that's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying to these Hebrew followers of Jesus as they contemplate the catastrophe that is undoubtedly coming. But what about us? We look at our world, we know that it's been shaken. We know that 
Tomorrow we'll look at the papers and it will be shaken again. Where did it start? How did all of this get going? Well, you probably have to read the literature that has been, that has been developed on this over the last few decades. But anthropologists, especially historical anthropologists, look at our world and trace our contemporary world back to an epicenter when the shaking first began. And you may or may not be surprised to know that it was on the left bank of the Seine River in Paris at the turn of the 20th century. There, a group of people on the left bank of the Seine, in French, the Rive Gauche, began to gather in the coffee shops and wine bars of Paris. The Bohemian culture that was perhaps best articulated to us as Western people in that amazing movie by Baz Luhrmann called Moulin Rouge, that kind of Bohemian culture created this world, a world where Pablo Picasso and Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir and Albert Camus and Ernest Hemingway would sit around the same table. And when they sat around those tables, they began to imagine a world that could be remade in the image of their world that they wanted. These people were the founders of the new way of thinking, existentialism that placed human beings at the very center of the universe and had no need for God. Of course, that is Jean-Paul Sartre. Radical feminism that rightly sought to remove the enslavement that so many women had suffered down through the centuries, but then went on to, then went on to try to rebuild society without the need for marriage or family, was first articulated by Simone de Beauvoir in her book, The Second Sex. And in the world of media, someone like Pablo Picasso stands unrivaled in his position of influence, bringing his communist and socialist ideals to bear upon his public. These people all drank the same coffee all shared the same bottles of wine. It's amazing, isn't it? Here in the, in the coffee shops and wine bars of the left bank of the Seine, ideas began to generate and germinate that eventually began to touch the intellectuals of Europe and eventually were discussed in the salons and universities across the Western world. And as the Western world was shaken first by the, will, the war to end all wars, the First World War, of course it didn't end all wars, and then the Second World War, as the West especially was shaken by these cultural upheavals, these thoughts were generated and propagated through the universities. It's an amazing thought that by the time a young Liverpudlian art student came out of his own college 
and began to write music that would change the world. That his philosophy of life was entirely designed by the people of the Reeve Gauche. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Music critics say that that song, Imagine, is the most important song of the 20th century. By far and away, the most influential. It's nihilistic existentialism. And it's the most popular song for a hundred years. You see, the world and the earthquake even has its own soundtrack. And so this cultural change began to have influence on the cultural norms that we believed would be with us forever. The shaking shook every part of society. By the time Watergate was completed, politics in this nation and the world had been shaken and any sense of trust in politicians had been robbed or removed. By the time the child abuse scandals had emerged and reached their full flower across the Western world in the institutionalized churches, people's trust in organized religion had been deeply shaken, if not entirely destroyed. And of course, the most important institution of them all, the family, was shaken to its very core. At the beginning of the 20th century, most of your forebears and mine functioned in the unit of family that had been the cornerstone for human life and development for thousands of years. In fact, in other parts of the world still today, it is the cornerstone of society. It's called the extended family. Today, today, the extended family is a long distant memory. But here's the thing, all of the research that looks at the development and the helpful maturity of children suggests that an extended family is the ideal place to nurture such children, such hearts and minds. And yet it's so rarely available. The extended family became the nuclear family. The nuclear family became the worn down nub that we see today. The writer to the Hebrews says, don't forget compassion. Don't forget community. The very heart of community being family. And then he says, don't forget the people who gave you the connecting story that helps you to understand who you are and what your life is about. 
He quotes to them from the Old Testament Scriptures and reminds them to remember the leaders who spoke the Word of God to them. There is a connecting story that helps us to understand who we are. Now in Europe, the sense of of national or cultural identity may well be long lost. But when we first arrived here in the early 90s, we went back to England uh, for 10 years in between that and then coming back here again. One of the things that we noted about school here in America was that there was a sense of identity. There was a connecting story. There was a flag. There was a national anthem. There was a pledge of allegiance. And children knew it. But the earthquake rumbles on and continues to shake everything. If you're, if you're a missionary, as I am, then you have to learn how to look at culture. When you look at culture, you, you use the tools of observation that the missionary leaders of the New Testament used. Those tools have been rarefied into the studies of things like sociology and anthropology these days. If you, were, if you were an anthropologist and you were saying, okay, so this big thing about family, how could we understand the way that people in America engage with it? What, where would you go? Well, if you were gonna go back, you know, maybe 50 or 60 years, you'd have to say that the main cultural artifact of our, of our life together has been the television. If you just started in the year 2000, you'd have to say the main cultural artifact was the internet. But, but considering that you know, most of us here have been born before the year 2000, the biggest cultural artifact would be the television. And then you'd say, okay, well, if it's television, what does television tell us about the way that people understand family? When we were in Arkansas in, um, in the early 90s, the number one television show was a show called Home Improvement. And there was a chap on there called Tim the Toolman Taylor. And he had the guy next door whose face we never saw. And um, I think Pamela Anderson was on there actually. She was one of the uh, helpers on the TV show. You know, it was, it was a kind of a fun thing. And it was, in many ways, my generation's, the boomers' generation, their attempt to articulate the desire of our generation. The desire of our generation was to fix the family by making it better. In Christian circles, it was called focus on the family. And in Christian circles, it was perhaps articulated by the way that we took the shape of the nuclear family and expressed it in the local congregation in home groups, small groups, Bible study groups that were about the size of a usual nuclear family. And it kind of gave us a sense of of family that we were used to. But of course, extended family was long gone. But home improvement was, was the thinking. In 1994, we left Arkansas and returned back to England, to Sheffield, and uh, we saw 
the end of Home Improvement and we saw the beginning of a really unusual show. It was a show that was far more articulating the next generation, a generation called Generation X, who had become wearied of the family and all of its misdemeanors and inabilities to help them as a generation. And so they as a generation decided to replace family with friends. It was amazing to see how this new way of thinking was articulated in this television show that for 10 years was the number one television show, not only here in the States, but all around the world, except when it was supplanted briefly by the psychotic version of Friends called Seinfeld. (laughs) Because as you know, Seinfeld and the writers of that show used Jungian analysis of personality to create the characters. So it was the kind of crazy version of Friends. We got here in 2004, the second time we came back, and of course we'd all cried with the last edition of Friends, and you know, maybe you didn't, but we all did. Because we just loved all the characters and we'd kind of grown up with them and blah, blah, blah. And so we get here and I'm wondering what the next picture of society is. What's the, what's the artifact that's going to reveal to us on TV? What's, what's the next generation? What are the millennials looking for? And I watched a show called Modern Family. And I said to Sally, I, I mean, I, I don't... I don't really watch a lot of terrestrial television, but I watched that and I said, that's going to be the number one show. And we had a conversation and and I said, the reason I think it's going to be the number one show is because it articulates perfectly what the millennials are looking for. They've looked at the boomers who tried to hold together the nuclear family. They've looked at Gen X who tried to replace family with friendship. And they've realize that if you combine the nuclear family with friendship, you get the thing that is part of the heartbeat of humanity around the world, the extended family. And so when you look at the modern family or the even more popular This Is Us, which I watched once and I couldn't possibly watch again because I just cried from beginning to end. (laughs) It was just too overwhelming. I said, I can't do this. This is, this is too emotionally draining. So my kids all watched it and I said, I'm not watching it. You just tell me what happened. It was like Sally when she watched Parent. I said, I just can't do it. I, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm in shreds by the end of it. I've got a box of Kleenex. I'm ruined for the next day. I can't do it. But basically, it's revealing the desire You see, there is a connecting story for all human beings. And the connecting story is this, family. And it's extended family that is the more common theme across the generations, across the centuries, across the millennia of the people who have inhabited God's world. And it's the new generation that are reconnecting with that 
deep connecting story and looking for and longing for extended family again. When I left home at 18, honestly, I never expected to be home ever again. You know, I'd call my parents, I'd see them for Christmas, but I mean, honestly, I'm not gonna be living near them. It's the last thing in the world that you want. Today, I mean, what used to be called failure to launch is now called millennial normality. Because they all come back again. You can't get rid of them. I've got one right here. They're in their 30s and they're still here. And it's wonderful. It's marvellous. In Greenville, we had our kids, you know, on the same street as us. And, and you know, we talked to other boomer parents and they all said, well, they're all doing the same thing. What is it? There's a basic instinct within human beings in the midst of calamity and in the prospect of tragedy to draw together. And so here is what God is revealing that he wants to do. Because he says very clearly through the text that we've been reading today that the shaking is created so that what is unshakable will be revealed. And so in the midst of the shaking, the shaking that, that seemed to destroy the very components of family, we have exposed the hard wiring that God has put into all of us as human beings, the desire for community that gives us security and significance. And the place where that happens, most especially and most perfectly, is the extended family. This is our connecting story and is why when Jesus spoke about God as Father, there was no other picture in the minds of the people that he spoke to other than a parent overseeing an extended family. There was no other picture. This is the model of the New Testament. This is the pattern of the new covenant. This is the connecting story that has been revealed in all of the shaking. And from that place, God will choose, I believe, to extend his kingdom of love and mercy from a family of children adopted to come home again, of prodigals who realize that they've lived in the pig pen too long and they need to come home to the father's house, of older of older siblings who perhaps have been captured by religion and held on for those reasons and yet need to understand that grace is what will hold them in the family. The writer to the Hebrews makes it very clear that the shaking 
needs to be understood as an opportunity for us to function as the rescue team. And why? Because we understand the basis of compassion. It's the compassion that God has had on us. We understand the nature of community because at the very heart of community is family. And at the very heart of family is a revelation of God as father. And so who better than his children to reestablish community? Who better than a group of people whose story goes back through the centuries to an old man and an old woman who had a child out of time, whom God said, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. What better that people to understand what the true connecting story of all of the lives of human beings might be. But the writer deals with something else as well. He, he deals with the nature of the earthquake and, and what it is that we might need in our hands as we as we move on to function as the rescue team. I was, um, I was in the North Island of uh, New Zealand a few years back in a city called Napier. And um, I, I was walking around with a pastor. We were chatting and I was working with his church and a few others up there. And I pointed out that all of the buildings that I could see, all of the public buildings at any rate, had 19... 1932 written on them at some point over the lintel on the wall. And I said, was that the year that the city was founded? He said, no, that was the, the year the city was rebuilt. I said, oh, well, what, what happened? He said, well, in, in 1931, in February 1931, there was a catastrophic earthquake that destroyed the entire city. He said, where my house is, that used to be the harbour. It's dry land, obviously. <coughs> he said, you know that, that kind of line of low rising hills in the distance? That used to be a plain. And here, the cliff, that used to be a mountain that, that kind of cascaded down into the ocean. It just fell away. He said it was so catastrophic that there was barely a building standing after the earthquake. And then he described some of the things that his family told him about the place. They said they would come out of the rubble and because there were no recognizable street signs, nobody, know, nobody knew where they were. Nobody, nobody had any sense of their place. They were completely disorientated. Not only was their life shaken, but now the world was so changed by the earthquake that they... They didn't know what to do or where to go. He said, in that moment, all the maps became completely redundant. The maps didn't work anymore. Speaking about another period of social upheaval, Victor Hugo, who wrote the perhaps most influential book of the 19th century, Les Miserables, said of that time that their world, their, 
their community was like a vessel on a raging sea. And he said in his inimitable style, he said, the sea with its remarkable billows is seeking to lead the ship astray. But the ship has its soul. It has its compass that forever counsels it and leads it to true north. The writer to the Hebrews says, of course, in the earthquake, the maps don't work. And so it's fortunate that we have a compass. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so how should we navigate this world? How should we build a network of house churches that gather on a Sunday? How should you engage with your house church to rebuild and reimagine extended family? How? How should we do it? There are no maps. Everything has been so shaken and changed that the maps don't work. I was given a whole box of maps metaphorically when I finished seminary. I got out into working life as a pastor. None of the maps worked. None of the programs that I was trained to use vaguely had any use at all in a world shaken by the cultural earthquake. But I did have a compass. And so do you. Jesus Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so that's why this weekend, as we've looked at Family on Mission, we've looked at the life of Jesus and asked ourselves, how did Jesus form the first Family on Mission? And what were the revelations that guided it? And, and what were the methods that he used to gather it? And so it'll be for us as we unfold into this new adventure of all the renewal that God is bringing to us at Apex. A renewal that's not going to require volunteers, but partners. We're gonna try and remove volunteer from the vocabulary. Because volunteer makes it sound like you're helping somebody else with their project. Of course that's not true. This is not my project or the elders' project or the leaders' project. This is our life. This is our family. This is Team Apex. And we're partners in it. And Sundays are not about consuming, but about collaboration. And house churches are not about hiving away and doing some kind of weird ghetto religious practice. But it's about living in the ministry and mission of Jesus together in an extended family of faith. During the last song, which we're going to sing in a moment, because I'm 52 seconds over, 
Uh, the interns who have done a brilliant job, and so many people have done a brilliant job over this weekend, but they've done a fantastic job. The interns are going to have clipboards at the front. And um, watch out, here they come. Is this them? Yes, it is. They're going to have clipboards at the front, and um, they, want, they want you to sign up. Now, we've got a couple of weeks before we go to a single service. But when we go to a single service, we're going to be in the adventure of collaboration. So who's going to be part of the adventure with family ministry? Who's going to help take care of those young lives who so need to know the Lord Jesus and to understand what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples? We'll talk about that in, in the coming weeks. Who's going to be here to welcome people who think that this is an ordinary church and they can just turn up? <laughs> who's, who's going to help those folks? So they can find a place to park and somewhere for their children to go to and a coffee that they can kind of use so that maybe they've got something to do in here whilst the preacher rambles on. What about, um, what about those people who will be needed to collaborate in the prayer and, and in, the, in the ministry that we do together as we meet and gather to worship the Lord? Well, pretty much it's all of us. We all, we all need everybody. But it may be that today you can see, see fit to just come on and sign up. And so these guys here will take your name, they'll take your email, and they'll check off wherever it is that you want to join in. Family ministry, media, welcome or connection. It's a great opportunity. It's a little bit like making the Ebenezer, but it's, uh, but it's a much more practical way of reflecting our common life together. And as we do that, and as you come up, just come up during the singing if you want to, and then at the end of the service, as you do that, we'll know how to navigate these next couple of weeks as we go through the necessary organisational things that'll make it possible for us to function as a single gathering on a Sunday to express that we are just the one family here at Apex. So if you would do that during the singing of the last song, we'd love that. If you do it after the singing of the last song, we'd love that. And um, when we get to the last song, I'll give those last couple of announcements that we need to have as we go out of here. Okay, let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our compass Thank you, Lord, that you do guide us in a world that no longer seems to have maps that work. Lord, we know that the world is changing and that the world will change tomorrow and the day after, but we know that you do not change, that you are the same. Thank you, Lord, that the things that you gave your first disciples, you give to us today. And so we receive your grace. We receive your mercy. We receive the empowering of the Spirit this day and we receive your people as our family and your Father as our Father. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done and for all that you made possible by your death on the cross. May we today, Lord, embrace the adventure of being your family because we pray it, Jesus, in your name. And everyone said...